Today, we bring you audio from the Embracing Autism IRL video podcast series. Welcome to Embracing Autism IRL. In this video series, we interview guests from a variety of backgrounds who are all linked together through autism. From advocates to therapists to parents and autistic adults, this series will take a well-rounded approach to sharing diverse perspectives on autism spectrum disorder. Our guests are encouraged to speak freely and be their authentic selves when discussing controversial yet critical topics in the autism community. If you'd like to watch the full unedited video of our interview-style podcast spinoff, Embracing Autism IRL, please subscribe to our YouTube channel of the same name and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Wish. New episodes release monthly. Hi, Embracers, and welcome to Embracing Autism IRL. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce Sasha Long. She holds a BCBA with an MA as well, and Sasha is the founder and president of the Autism Helper, Inc. She's a board-certified behavior analyst and former special education teacher. Sasha shares strategies and best practices through her blog, podcast, membership, and online courses. Sasha travels internationally as a speaker and consultant, providing individualized training and feedback to parents, educators, educators, therapists, and administrators in the world of autism. Hi, Sasha. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It's awesome to have you since I had the pleasure to be on your podcast and I figured, hey, should get you over on mine. (laughs) (laughs) Full circle moment. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your work in the autism community and why you decided to create the Autism Helper. Yeah. So I'm a former special education teacher And my first year, my first job, I had all kids with autism in my class. And so really just fell into that role right away, you know. And as a young teacher, I realized so quickly how unprepared a special ed degree really gets you for being a special ed teacher. You know, it's such a broad range of what you can do as a special ed teacher. You could be a preschool teacher. You could be in high school. You could be in self-contained. You could be in resource. So I was hungry for ideas. I was lucky to be at a school that had a few different special ed teachers. And this was before Pinterest, this was before Instagram. So I just like wanted, you know, to learn as much as I could. Um, so those first few years were hard. And once I kind of got the hang of what I was doing, um, I went back to school to get my master's in ABA and become a board certified behavior analyst. And I did that while I was in the classroom, which is a little bit unique because a lot of BCBAs work in in-home or in clinic settings. And I feel like I'm a public school teacher first and a BCBA second. So it was fun to learn about all of these strategies and then see them still work in that public school setting. Um, So once I had my BCBA and was a teacher, I wanted to really share everything I was doing in my classroom. So I started a blog, like having no idea, like, all right, I'm going to put my ideas out there and see what happens. And it all really snowballed. You know, I started sharing resources that I made on Teachers Pay Teachers, started doing consulting with schools, with families, doing some in-home stuff, doing speaking and training. And it all just kind of grew really naturally from there to what the Autism Helper is today. So now we provide strategies and training and curriculum for teachers and parents all around the world. We have four online courses. We have a professional development membership group. We have curriculum access, which gives school districts a chance to get their teachers all of our curriculum, which is super exciting. So teachers are really prepared to provide that like highly differentiated but still evidence-based curriculum for their learners. And I do a lot of training. So I do a lot of training here in my basement on Zoom or I like tomorrow I'm going to a school district. So um, we're kind of providing support in a lot of different ways for educators and parents kind of in the autism special ed space. 
That's awesome. So as you may or may not know, my audience tends to be primarily parents of autistic kids. It's higher on the mom side than the dad side, but we do have some dad listeners. And as a parent to special needs kids myself, I have a lot of that back and forth with the IEP process and talking to the schools and all of that. So I was just wondering, what are some tips that you might have for parents, particularly right now, because most of us are transitioning from summer to school? We've already started, but I know there's some people that are not starting for the next couple weeks. Um, what would be some tips for parents to kind of help ease that transition back to school? I mean, I feel you with my own kids right now. Our first day is on Wednesday and I'm like, oh man, our bedtimes are like later than they should be. Um, so I'm not even taking my own advice. Um, I did a, a reel recently about this. And and one of the first things I, I talked about was bedtimes. Like I think getting back to those routines kind of slowly and like, what, what should our bedtime be? What time are we waking up? That can help ease that back to school transition. I think as much as you can do to prepare your child for a new classroom, new teacher, whether that's getting photos of that teacher or that classroom, it's always great. Of course, when schools can do some of that transition planning in the spring of the previous year, but even if it doesn't happen, walking by the school, driving by, taking that route, show where we're going to park. I mean, I think even as adults, so much of anxiety and stress comes from the unknown. Like, what is it going to look like when I get there? Where am I going to sit? And that's same for everyone and, and our kids included. So that can help ease some of that you know, nervousness for everyone. And then I think once you get started with that IEP team, the main thing is being really, really proactive. And from my experience, you know, teachers aren't going to always offer or even know exactly what the best practices are from an IEP process. Like they might not even know a young teacher that, hey, I'm supposed to give a draft of this IEP, or that's just not how that school has done it. So they end up not doing it that way. But I think being as proactive as you can and pushing yourself to be, be probably more proactive than you want to be. You know, I think like the people pleaser in us is like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to annoy them, like annoy them, you know, like, <laughs> and, and making sure that your kid is getting everything that they're entitled to. Cause there's so many parents that don't even know that, Hey, Oh, I can't ask for that. I can't ask for ESY or I can't, I can't see the draft of the IEP ahead of time. Um, and that's unfortunate cause that it's kind of, you know, a school and educators role to really teach parents about what their rights are, you know, right away and throughout their years in school. I could definitely relate to what you're saying, though, in terms of being able to find that information. It almost seems like as a parent, you have to kind of excavate and dig for that information. Mm -hmm. and you don't really know um, what is available to you right away uh, without that deep digging. So I'm kind of happy you mentioned the IEP because I wanted to kind of pivot and ask you from your experience, what are some tools that you think parents should be able to share with their IEP team that might help kind of manage things like behavioral challenges or power struggles with your ch child if you tend to have one of those autistic kiddos who's a little bit more on the behaviorally challenging side? That was one of the things that has kind of happened with us with our older kid who has those more behavioral challenges? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think starting right away before the IEP, before there's a behavior plan in place, for me, from the teacher perspective, the more I know, the better. So I've always had the best successes with behavior plans from a clinician role or a teacher role when the home and the school are working together. Like I want to know right away, what are the triggers? What are precursors? What are behaviors I'll see that maybe might escalate? And then what works at home? Like if you're like, oh, this always works or this never works, telling all of that to the teacher um, and really sharing what 
the big struggles are. And then figuring out what are what are really functional goals for both the school setting and the home setting. Yeah, we have all of our great academic goals at at school, but when it comes to behavior and communication, what things are going to really make the day-to-day life of a family better. And that's going to be better for that child. You know, I'm thinking back to one of my students a long, long time ago, who's now like 26. And we, I was talking to his mom and we were talking about goals and things like that. And she's like, I just want to go to Outback Steakhouse with my family on Friday. And I want him to come with. And I was like, we should do that. You should go to Outback Steakhouse with your family and he should come with. And that was something literally we worked on. And that was a goal. And I like remember the day of getting a picture of him with like a blooming onion at Outback Steakhouse, because that was a big accomplishment that they were out to dinner with their whole family and that he came with and that he was successful there. Um, so I wouldn't have known that, you know, from my assessments I was doing in the classroom, but that was an important goal for her and for her family. They wanted to spend time as a family. That was something they wanted to go out to dinner and getting those goals that are in line with those families' values. You now have buy-in from the parents, but you're going to know that this is, we're going somewhere they want to go to. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, I think part of the IEP process has been trying to come up with like unconventional solutions to conventional problems, if that makes sense. One of the things that's kind of come up is, at least in my experience and with some of my other mom friends in the community, there's been kind of like this tension between parents in the school and parents in their IEP team. And oftentimes, this leads in a little bit of a struggle with that collaboration process. Um, There might be like pushback from the IEP team, and it might not be um, aggressive pushback, but it might be kind of passive pushback where they're like, well, let's wait a couple more weeks and see if we need that. Or uh, I'm not sure. I haven't seen those behaviors here in school. I know you're saying you're seeing it at home, but we've never seen it here. What advice do you have to offer to parents who might be experiencing these things at home, witnessing them at home, feeling like their child really needs some sort of like IEP accommodation, but that team is kind of pushing back and in a sense kind of invalidating their concern? I think that you need to be respectfully pushy and stay at it. And because if that is something that you know is is an issue or a support you need, and I know exactly what you mean, it's like that passive, like, yeah, well, maybe we'll look into that later. And you're like, no, 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 like uh, staying on that and continuing. I mean, like, cool. When when can I follow up on this in a week? Cool. I'll set a reminder and I'm going to email you in a week about this. And and not and you are a member of that IEP team. You're not like a guest on the IEP team. You're not the audience. Like you're a member of it. So as much as the teacher and the OT and the SLP have a say, so does the parent. And I think that it does. You know, everyone comes to the table kind of immediately defensive because educators have been in positions where they've had to defend what they do. Parents have been consistently in the position of having to defend what they, you know, do and want. So everyone's kind of already like up in arms. And I think the more that teachers can say we're all on the same team, the more parents can say we're all on the same team. And I, and I, you know, I always tell when I talk to teachers about how to collaborate and like tips for that, I, you know, I say how important it is to validate something someone else is saying if you want validation yourself. So validating things teachers are saying like, hey, I I hear you that you see this. Yeah, like validating the things they're noticing, but then also still bringing up your concerns and not um, letting it be dismissed if it's something that you think is really important. 
Yeah, that totally makes sense because that that is part of that collaborative process of making sure you know and you're aware that we're on the same side here. I feel like that has been the primary struggle for us is we feel like we kind of have to be the parents and we're like, okay, let's kind of ease and lead this conversation. (laughs) Um, But I feel like that does we do make more progress that way than we would kind of like just starting a fight. Um, So that's definitely something that I've seen as helpful. Uh, One of the other things that I've noticed is that sometimes when it comes to the IEP and getting some of this pushback or getting some of this kind of difficult communication, some of the things that I've noticed is that it is sometimes correlated to that teacher basically being burnt out on the job. So I I may or may not have Facebook stock a couple teachers. <laughs> I may or may not be confessing this, but I mean every mom does. Let's be let's be real. Um, and by doing so, I learn a lot about like what has been going on in their lives. And some of the things that I've learned and noticed is like this this teacher seems like they're pretty burnt out. Like it seems like they're having a rough go at things. And I don't think that that is translating well in the classroom. So what are some things that you think parents can do to help address the impact of educator burnout on their child? Oh my gosh. I wish I had like a quick and easy solution for that. Um, You know, the reality is it is, I mean, it's harder than ever to be a teacher. I think it was already a really hard, teaching is already a really hard job. Teaching special ed is already a really hard job. And I think COVID took it down a few notches too, because it, you know, we had this like cute moment right at the start of the pandemic where all parents were like, oh my God, teachers are amazing. We have our kids at home and we're all dying. And then that like went away real quick. And, you know, it's, it's a hard position to be in and feeling underappreciated and overwhelmed. And especially in self-contained rooms where uh, behaviors are high. Staff is, you know, literally non-existent. I mean, I used to talk about in trainings like five years ago being understaffed, and it's hilarious that I thought people were over understaffed five years ago. Like, it's it's a whole different world now. Like, people literally cannot hire anyone. Um, jobs that used to have a thousand applicants ten years ago have two. You know, so it's it's kind of wild, and and I think it's it's really sad to be the parent of the kid in that burnt out room and. And I, you know, when looking at like what schools you get, you know, when I talk with parents like, oh, we're placed at this school and this school doesn't have a great rating or whatever. I'm always like, meet the teacher. It's not about the school. It's about literally the teacher. You could have like the crappiest school with the worst rating and you might have this gem teacher that just literally cares about your kid. And that's kind of like super non-behavior analytically, the thing that you just need, you just need someone to care about your kid and that's willing to do what they have to do. And sometimes that's a lot because it's going to be really getting really creative and thinking outside the box. And I think if you get that teacher that's in that hard place, I mean, all you can really do is support the teacher as much as you can as like a parent. So not your role and job necessarily. But um, I think if there are like objective things that are not happening, that should be like data is not being taken. I'm not getting any communication home. Um, behavior plans not being followed. Those like objective things that aren't like an opinion. Well, like she could be friendly or a pickup. Well, okay, maybe she's really in it, you know, and she just doesn't have the capacity at pickup to be friendly. But those objective things obviously go to, you know, special ed directors, pr- principals on those things. Um, but it is, it is a really hard job, you know, and it's, and it, but it's hard to be the role of the parent in that classroom too. Yeah, it's. I feel like it's kind of like difficult all the way around. As a parent, for me, the hardest part is typically 
not wanting the consequences of your action to impact your child. So like as parents, we're kind of skittish too when it comes to bringing up any of these, I I guess, issues or pain points we might be having with the teacher because we know our kid is in there without our supervision for eight hours a day and we don't know what's happening behind closed doors. We don't know how the teacher's feeling that we may have confronted them about a certain thing. And I think that's where a lot of like that parent anxiety comes from. Um, But I feel like you're right. It's like the only thing we can really do is just be communicative and make sure that our IEP is basically being followed to like the best of our ability. Um, I think you can kind of, sorry to interrupt you, but like kind of even going back to what we said before, like that, you know, you're, if you come in like hard, like, oh, we have an advocate here, we're going to go do process. Like, we're not going to get that much done because also now the teacher immediately is like, I hate you. Like, I mean, not I hate you, but you know what I mean? They're like, oh my God, this is causing this huge issue and it's not going to be productive versus if you go the long, hard route of like, okay, let's like work on rapport building and let's like validate their concerns and let's see how I can support them. Even though you're like, I'm the parent, they should be supporting me. But like in the long run, it's going to be more successful. And even saying like, hey, you know, like if the IEP is not being followed, maybe not, your maybe your first move is not to go to the special ed director, but it's to talk to that, you know, teacher. I mean, like, I see like you're, you're, you have a ton of kids in your class. It seems like you have high behavioral needs. It seems like you're understaffed. It must be so hard to follow this. Like, what can we do here? Like, can I, like as a parent go complain and say, this teacher needs more staff, you know, like what, what can I do? And, and so it's not putting it on the teacher that things aren't being followed. It's putting it on like the situation that like this setting, there's not enough support and like being like, Hey, cause sometimes a parent's voice is way louder than a teacher's voice and advocating to get what that teacher needs, whether it's more staff or resources or whatever. Yeah. And that is so hard to do sometimes like emotionally, like as the parent to kind of pull back and try to put yourself in the shoes of the teacher. Cause especially like when your mama bear instincts come out, like you are all about like protecting your kid. And it's so hard sometimes to kind of take a step back and realize, okay, hold on they're human too. <laughs> like, like, let's go and do this as a team. Um, but yeah, that's, that's totally makes sense to me. Um, so one of the things that I know that you like to talk about on your podcast is about executive functioning. I'm really curious about that because as a child, I was actually diagnosed with executive dysfunction myself. So I went through all the difficulties of getting a late diagnosis with that. So I was wondering, uh, what are some of those tools and techniques that you would recommend to students who are trying to manage executive dysfunction, either like elementary to high school age? Yeah, I mean, executive functions is such a huge thing right now. I mean, I think it's always been, but now we like know more about it. And I think, again, because of COVID, so many kids missed out on those really important opportunities to learn and build executive functions. And you know, last few years, I mean, third grade teachers that have like taught third grade for 15 years were like, oh my God, what is this class? They don't know how to do any like quote unquote typical third grade skills because they didn't have the opportunity to learn those. And those are all executive functions. So when I teach in depth on executive functions and we have a full on-demand course on this, the basic strategy that I teach is to really approach executive functions from two directions. First, you want to like directly teach those skills for success in the future because, and those are hard skills, time management, flexibility, planning, task initiation. These are big, hard skills. But a lot of our kids need more direct, purposeful instruction with tools that can be like strategically taught, not like I'm learning this in the environment more loose. So providing that direct instruction on those missing skills while at the same time 
adding in environmental supports that'll help them be successful today. If we just directly teach skills, then we're going to like, what are we going to wait until those skills get built up? And then we're struggling in the meantime. So to, to kind of get that success for today piece, we have to really look at what supports we can add to the environment. How can we structure the physical environment? How can we change the way the task is presented? How can we change the way adults prompt, praise, um, redirect, things like that? What verbal language is being utilized? How can we add in other visuals and tools and, and adjust expectations as well? So we want to look at like, okay, let's address the environment for success today, but let's also directly teach those skills. So then we can pull back those supports in the future. So that's like in a big picture, like zoomed out way, how I approach teaching executive functions. So it seems like executive functions really have a lot of overlapping with life skills. Is there a way that those type of skills can also be incorporated into an IEP? Is that something that would be appropriate or applicable to an IEP team discussion? Yes, literally. I When I do a full day on executive functions, we go through all 11 and I give IEP examples for every single executive function. And it should be in the IEP because you want to be allocating time and minutes for that. Um, typically, an executive functioning goal could be a social emotional goal. It could be an independent functioning goal. Um, I've written IEPs with language arts goals that are related to executive functions because reading and executive functions are like so, so intertwined. Um, so yeah, it definitely should be included in that IEP so that we're allocating minutes for it. Do you mind giving an example of what an executive function goal would look like? Yeah. So let's say you're looking at something, let's look at like a high school or junior high skill. So you could look at something like time management, and this could be for a study hall or an independent assignment. So you kind of look at planning and time management, you know, saying when given a, you know, an assignment, a, a long-term assignment, you know, two or plus weeks out, the student will create a plan, uh, create a plan or st- set of st- steps and checklists, will execute that plan um, and turn in the assignment within the deadline with X amount of prompts or support. So really breaking down what that looks like. For something at like a more simple level, it could be something like emotional control. Like Johnny will, when Johnny loses a game or, you know, gets a bad grade, Johnny will pick a coping skill, use a coping skill and return to his schedule within five minutes. Um, So it could be something as, you know, that's not even a basic skill. It's a hard skill, but a lot of kids struggle on, on that bounce back piece, you know, and managing their emotions with, you know, that emotional control skill. That's, I think, a really good one because I think that that is applicable across pretty much all ages, yes. whether they're like three or 16 or in their 40s. Yeah, it'll always be relevant. Yes. Um, what would you consider to be an optimal learning environment? Um, this is a term that I've heard you use before, and I'm trying to learn a little bit more about what that means and how parents can encourage schools to create one for their child. So I think, and kind of going back to like this executive functioning component as well, thinking about what what is the purpose of in everything in my environment, but what is going to allow my student to focus on the skill they have to learn? Um, so that think you know, thinking about removing distractions, thinking about the why behind everything in your room. Like we have schedules so our kids can navigate their day. We have small group instruction so we can focus on certain skills with each group. We you know have our morning meeting visuals so we can learn about the weather, and and really thinking through what those things are. Um, I think a, a, a structured 
environment has to be predictable, has to be routine based, and it has to be visually divided and defined. So basically students and kids in, in a home setting too know when I am sitting at the table here and dinner is in front of me, these are the behaviors expected of me. We really want like the routine to be the cue, not always verbal language because a lot of our kids struggle with receptive language processing. So when we're like, honey, it's time for dinner, sit down and let's talk and let's do this. And we're going to folk, you know, we're going to eat our dinner. It's, it's too much language and we're not kind of processing it. So like even the simple thing of like sitting at a certain table for a meal, that sitting at that table is the cue of what behaviors we expect. That's why like, you know, if I give my kids, let them eat on the couch, like my own kids, it's like a hot mess because it's, you know, unstructured, they're on the couch. They like, you know, they're like not paying attention, things are everywhere versus at the table, there's a different expectation. Like we're at the table, like we need to use a fork and we we talk during dinner and we like eat, you know, stay focused on eating. So we almost want that that cue of where you are to to lead into the expected behaviors. That totally makes sense. That chaos is exactly what happens in my family at dinner time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so one of the other questions that I have is oftentimes there's things put in the IEP and these things often comes from the parent's experience with their child and maybe something that they used in previous therapies or something like that. And oftentimes the teacher who's going to be looking at this IEP may have never seen, um, I guess, whatever that um, accommodation is before. Like this might be their first experience seeing what it is and they might not quite understand how it works or how it functions. So how can parents address like the appropriate or inappropriate use of like specific tools, for example, in that accommodation in the classroom to teachers who might not quite understand its purpose? Yeah, I think kind of goes back to what we first said on like really being proactive and emailing ahead of time and I feel like we were, we're so many of us are visual learners, like send a picture, send a photo, like explain it in detail as as detailed and thorough as an IEP is. It's still really not like even if you have in there like Johnny benefits from using a first then board and he's just like, oh, I tried this first then board. It didn't work. Well, maybe she used real photos and Johnny's used to using clip art or vice versa. Maybe the previous teacher used a choice menu that had four options. And this teacher has a choice menu that has 12 options and it's way too much. Maybe his preferred items aren't on that first then board. Maybe the first then board wasn't presented close enough to the activity and they didn't see it during the activity. I mean, there's so many ways you can use every strategy that just checking it on an accommodations box or adding it in isn't going to give that whole, all the details of what it is. So I think you know, really explaining that like, you know, hey, I said Johnny needs noise canceling headphones. Let me like explain to you why and when he needs them. And this is the brand he uses and it's going to be in his backpack. And, you know, if he asks for it in his textbook, you need to give it to him right away because that means he's really struggling and not just like letting that be. Oh, he says, you know, noise canceling headphones are in the IEP, like really giving those details. Do you feel like there's a better way to offer those details, like whether it's written or in a conversation? Do you think it really matters? I think I kind of always as a teacher and I tell teachers a lot, like ask parents what's their preferred method of communication. Um, because like for me, I'm like a big email text person. Like if someone calls me, like I'm not even gonna answer, I'm gonna let it go to voicemail. So like I'm like, don't, you know, don't bother. But some people prefer that phone conversation. So that's what I always encourage teachers to do is to ask parents, like, what is your best method of communication? And then go with what works for them. You know, if they're like, no, I only want to email you and write this out, then great. If they want a phone call, you know, having asking for that, you know, being okay with that too. So I um, also 
asked this basically of all my guests. And one of the things that I like to ask is we are called the Embracing Autism Podcast because we have a very particular view of what it is to embrace autism. And everybody seems to have this unique, different definition of what it means to them. So I always like to ask my guests, what is it that the phrase embracing autism means to you? I think it means, you know, and I coming at this from an educator standpoint that, you know, we can provide education, you know, new teaching new skills, communication, academics, while still letting each child and each individual be like uniquely them and having their quirks and their special interests and their unique things that they love and want to talk about and that we can provide great instruction and a great education while still validating and acknowledging and respecting that because at the end of the day we all have our unique interests too like I talk about this I talk about this in trainings a lot when I talk about reinforcement like I love watching like real housewives and trashy reality tv like some people would be like oh that's ridiculous why would you watch that and it, it is but that's just what I like and same thing with our kids like really respecting you know what they're into and what they want to do and not taking that away while you know, still being able to provide a great quality education. So that's kind of maybe where I'd go with that. Is there anything else that I may not have asked that you would like to share? You know, I think like touching on that piece is it's about taking that other standpoint, like from the parent, um, it, how hard that is. And it's, I think, also so hard sometimes for a teacher to take the the perspective of the parent. And I think both if both teams did more of that, both sides, you know, it wouldn't feel like sides of the table. Um, and really, you know, to to teachers, I say this all the time, like when they are burnt out, I do have like a whole soapbox speech about, you know, yes, you might be super frustrated and burnt out. Behavior plans are not working and you're getting basically beat up. But at the end of the day, that child's someone's baby and that's someone's whole world. And they're putting him on a bus, dropping him off at a school and like hoping and praying that someone treats their baby well. And that is really hard when aggression's at play, when we're talking about big behaviors and as burnt out as you are at the end of that day, remember that how would you want someone treating your baby? Um, and even if they're 15 pounds and 200 pounds, they're still someone's baby. Um, so taking that perspective and I, and I think, you know, parents doing the same is hard as it is. And I can't even like imagine having to do that because you're like, this is your job to teach my kid and help me. Um, And it is, but, you know, giving that, that perspective to them too, I think will just improve the relationship both ways. Well, thank you so much for that insight. That's definitely food for thought. (laughs) Um, Well, I know that we previously mentioned some potential freebies for my audience or some resources or something of the sort. Um, If you want to go ahead and share now um, your resources and also where my listeners can find you on social media. Yeah. So we have um, two websites. Our second website is the Autism Helper Network. And if you go to our main website, it'll link you to that. And at the Autism Helper Network, you can sign up for a free account. And it we have an app that makes it really easy to access. And it's kind of like a cross between like Facebook and then also like free downloads. So you can post. There's parent groups. There's teacher groups. Um, great way to connect with other parents, other educators, and really learn about what they're doing or troubleshoot or be like, hey, does your kid do this? So does mine. What works for you? Um, and on that network, we do a free resource every Friday. So there you can go back and like 
look at all the other ones we've given. You literally search free resources. There's a bunch that come up. So we give free resources every Friday. So definitely check those out. Um, our main website's theautismhelper.com. And then on social media, we are basically everywhere at The Autism Helper. So any, we're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Now Threads is the new one, you know. So we're on, we're on all the things. <laughs> and they're all, are they all at The Autism Helper? Yeah. Yep. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciated the conversation. It's been personally helpful, but I know it will also be really helpful to my audience who is all pretty much struggling with this right now, especially back to school. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. This has been the audio from the Embracing Autism podcast live stream series. Please check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Autism Wish to catch these shows live. Otherwise, stick around next week for our next episode. This is Embracing Autism.